for proteins that are enriched in the branch chain amino acids to a greater extent. Whether they ultimately result in increases in muscle mass above and beyond what you would see with a comparable amount of protein, I think it depends on the population. I think it depends on whether they're taken with or without exercise and training what the population is that's being studied, what the kind of exercise training that they're undergoing. I think it's more equivocal. I think some studies have been positive, but I don't think all studies have been positive with regard to accrual of muscle mass. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver and I'm joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Roger Fielding. Dr. Fielding is the Associate Director of the Jean Meyer USDA Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University. He also serves as leader and senior scientist of the Nutrition, Exercise, Physiology, and Sarcopenia team. Dr. Fielding's research interests include the impact of exercise and physical activity on successful aging, skeletal muscle alterations with advancing age in disabled and non-disabled populations, age-related alterations in the control of skeletal muscle protein turnover. A lot of good things to dig into today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Ashley. So Roger, we know each other for a very long time, maybe a decade, may, maybe longer. And I never ask you about your background. So I will take this opportunity and uh, ask you about your career path and uh, what inspired you to become a scientist? Well, it's interesting. That's a great question, Gil, because I had the opportunity to reflect a little bit on this last week, this international conference on frailty and sarcopenia that we, I helped to run we bestowed the Lifetime Achievement Award to my mentor, Dr. Bill Evans, who I think you've met before. Well, and the story goes is that I was an undergraduate at Boston University in about 1980 and took a class with Dr. Evans on physiology. And he was talking about all these great things about skeletal muscle and muscle fiber types and adaptations to exercise training. And while I had always been interested in science and biology a little bit, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. But when I met him, what he was interested in just seemed so cool and resonated so much with me that he suggested that I really go on to graduate school where he had trained, which was at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. So I went out there after I graduated from BU for a couple of years and got a lot of experience in studying exercise training and exercise performance of really of young athletes, swimmers, runners, triathletes, learned a lot about how to do human studies to study exercise capacity and skeletal muscle metabolism. And then when I finished my master's degree, I actually took a job back at Tufts where Bill Evans had sort of ended up 
I think I worked for about four years. And that was the time when he really focused his work on trying to understand the age-related changes in skeletal muscle and exercise capacity and what role nutrition and exercise played in those processes. And, you know, I was reflecting on this when we were bestowing the award on Bill. It's easy to forget that there was very little research in older, on aging and older people in the 1980s. And older people were largely ignored by society and by medicine, and really were just a problem to our healthcare system. And at that time, I got to work with Bill when very exciting things were going on in his laboratory about trying to understand how older people's physical functioning and exercise capacity could really be influenced by nutrition and by physical activity. And, and I'm very, very grateful for those experiences. I went on and did my PhD with him at Tufts. Then I migrated over to Boston University where I became a faculty member and established my own laboratory and was there for 11 years. And then was really fortunate to be recruited back to the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts in about 2004 and really was able to sort of move my career forward. Uh, we've done a lot of really exciting things since then at Tufts, at the HNRCA, and that's really how it got started, really, because I walked into the, the right classroom, and I think everybody has that kind of story where the person that is teaching the class or that you meet in, in the university, really something they're doing resonates with you, and it, it certainly resonated with me, and here we are 40-plus years later still doing things that I really love and really enjoy and still feel like we have a lot to learn about aging and, and how people's physical function changes with age and how nutrition and physical activity can influence that. That's awesome. Dr. Evans was one of our guests on season one of the podcast and is still one of my favorite episodes that we've done. Oh, great. He is a colleague at, at UC Berkeley yeah. in the nutrition department, and he teaches two or three classes to our intro nutrition students. And I just want to like shake them and be like, you don't know how lucky you are. People pay so much money to hear this man talk. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's great to hear. I mean, it was good to kind of reconnect last week. And it was really a nice, nice event for Bill and his family too. So nice. he was great. Well, diving in, let's start with some basics. Can you describe how the body builds muscle? Sure. Well, the body builds muscle several different ways because muscle is very responsive to a couple of factors that's, that are always kind of sort of around. There are nutritional factors, so what we eat in our diet. So we have to have an adequate supply of protein. And most, more particularly, we have to have an adequate supply of the building blocks of protein that we get from eating protein in our diets, the amino acids and primarily the essential amino acids there the amino acids that our bodies don't have the capability to produce themselves. So nutrition is important. Also, the amount of energy we eat in our diet is also important. So we have to eat enough calories to really build muscle. There are several circulating hormones that circulate in the, the bloodstream in our bodies that are what we call pro-anabolic or pro-myogenic that stimulate muscles to grow and get bigger the ones that everybody knows about are things like testosterone and dehydrotestosterone. These are the anabolic hormones that are the male sex steroids. 
But even some of the female reproductive hormones like estrogen and estradiol particularly also stimulate muscle to grow. So these reproductive hormones, besides their role in, in the reproductive process, are also important for muscular development. And we also have some hormones in our body or cytokines in our body that can counteract the effects of the promyogenic hormones like estrogen and testosterone. These are the cytokines that are more catabolic, like interleukin-6, interleukin-1-beta, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and some of the other pro-inflammatory molecules that activate the breakdown of protein in muscle. And there's always this sort of balance between these hormones. And then most importantly, muscle, just like our bone, responds a lot to the loading conditions that we put it under. So if we're in sort of earthbound gravity here, there's a lot of loading on the muscle that stimulates the muscle to grow. If we go up into space, like in the International Space Station, where there's zero gravity, that load, those loading conditions are all taken away and we have atrophy of the muscle or the muscle size starts to decrease and shrinks. If we start a program of resistance training or strength training exercises, we can induce a pretty robust increase in skeletal muscle growth. So the size of the muscle groups that are doing the training will actually increase. And if we look down under the microscope about what's happening, the actual cross-sectional areas of those muscle fibers or muscle cells actually increase in diameter. So they actually, the individual cells get bigger. And conversely, if we have an injury or we can't do much physical activity, or let's say we fracture our, our right leg and we get put in a cast, very quickly those muscles that are in the cast will also undergo a similar type of atrophy as we see during space flight. So muscle responds to all those sort of different stimuli or conditions that they're exposed to. So, Roger, you described very nicely building and breaking muscle. The question that I'm wondering about is, what is the mechanism of muscle breakdown? How it's happening that our muscles start to decay? Yeah, well, there are some, in the muscle cells, there are some very tightly regulated signaling pathways that will activate a very complex cascade of enzymes. These are molecules that are proteins that are designed to actually kind of attach to large muscle proteins and actually start pulling them apart and breaking them down. These are sort of the, what are called, and they're also involved in this very small protein called ubiquitin. These are these ubiquitin ligase proteins. And there are several of these that are specific to skeletal muscle and they are activated by a number of factors, some of which I already described, like the pro-inflammatory cytokines and other factors in muscle. And these ubiquitin ligases, in a very organized way, actually begin the process of breaking down the skeletal muscle fibers. And, and, and correspondingly, the actual amount of contractile machinery within the muscles, the things that the proteins that actually generate force start to decline and the cross-sectional area or the size of the muscles will also shrink or decrease in size. Interesting. And specifically related to your expertise of sarcopenia, can you explain how muscle breakdown relates to sarcopenia and the other factors that are usually present as well? 
Yes. Well, you know, sarcopenia, just like many complex syndromes of, of advancing age, like frailty, dementia, other syndromes and diseases, isn't just influenced by one factor. So if you, if you think about all those things that I talked about that affect sort of muscle growth and muscle loss, many of those change with age. We know that the promyogenic molecules, estrogen, testosterone, DHA, insulin-like growth factor one, all start to decline with advancing age. We know that there are changes in the sort of loading conditions that the muscle experiences. People become less active as they age. That influences muscle protein breakdown. There's this well-characterized rise in the pro-inflammatory cytokine molecules, sometimes we call this inflammaging, if you will, that can cause muscle protein breakdown. And we know that there are changes to both the quality and the quantity of the diet then also can influence these processes. So again, it's many of the same factors that are changing with age that regulate not only the degradation of proteins or skeletal muscle proteins in muscle, but also probably influence how much skeletal proteins are being synthesized in muscle as well. So it's really disrupting this balance of protein synthesis and protein degradation. And are there subpopulations that are at a greater risk of age-related muscle loss? Certainly it can happen to everyone as we age, but are there some people that are much more susceptible? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. In fact, what happens is, is that the rate of muscle loss that people experience can vary. It's influenced by what the gains in muscle mass are, the peak gains in muscle mass are, during growth and development in youth, and then what the rate of loss is after that. And what we do know is that many medical conditions and insults like hospitalizations, infectious disease, comorbidities can cause either a chronic or kind of an acute acceleration of this muscle loss so that the person either over time has a more rapid rate of loss or they have these sort of intermittent insults that cause them to lose muscle that they never quite recover from so that their rate of loss over time is accelerated. And what I think is really important is that the reason muscle loss is so important is that At a certain level, at a certain point, you will reach a point that you lose so much muscle that your ability to perform specific activities of daily living, walking, getting up out of a chair, getting out of bed, climbing stairs, will start to become affected negatively. And those rates are different in different people for many different reasons. But once you get to that point, that's when it really can start, the muscle loss can really start to affect how you function in your own environment, and really can become sort of a barrier to your maintaining an independent lifestyle. So, so Roger, that's interesting. And my follow-up question is, how can we measure our physical function? Are there specific essay or specific tests that we can do, like I can do after the podcast to be sure uh, what is my uh, physical decline level? So measuring muscle mass can be done. There are very good imaging techniques that you can do in the laboratory or in the hospital 
There are some really new techniques that, in fact, Dr. Evans is pioneering where you can use a very simple single dose of a stable non-radioactive isotope and measure that isotope in a spot urine sample. That's a very good direct measure of muscle mass. But aside from those things, what you can do is we can actually measure how strong you are by measuring your grip strength. That's a very good prognostic indicator of late life disability, falls, fractures, and mortality, grip strength, very simple test. We can also do tests of function like just simply measuring how fast you can walk across a very short, short course at your sort of normal walking speed. And it turns out that normal walking speed is a very strong predictor of mortality, of risk of falling, and other sort of bad clinical outcomes. So there are ways to do this pretty simply, I would say. So, so Roger, I'm a very fast walker, so I feel uh, very good, well, good about that. You. That's great. <laughs> so you're likely to live a long time, Gil, so yeah. that, that's great. I hope that the correlation will uh, stay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very strong relationship, and it's really held up across a lot of observational studies. So we, we watch people and follow them for a long time, measure their walking speed, and then see what happens to them. What we still don't know is if you can intervene, if you have somebody that has a slow walking speed, for example, if you intervene with an exercise intervention or a therapy or a nutritional intervention, if you can improve their walking speed, will that really benefit them in terms of sort of greater mortality or or reduced risk of falling or other measures? So we're still learning a little bit about that. Some of the early signals suggest that, yes, if you improve someone's walking speed with an exercise intervention, it can help them not, it can prevent them from becoming disabled, but whether it affects their mortality or some of their long-term outcomes, we still really don't know exactly. But it takes very large randomized trials that, that follow people for a long time to really do that. And then, Roger, what is the explanation for the grip strengths? Why uh, that's correlate with longevity? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. There is evidence that grip strength correlates very well with other measures of muscle strength, for example, in the lower extremity. The reason grip strength, I think, is so pervasive is that it's a simple test. And in fact, it's been used in many, many large epidemiological cohort studies. So we have a lot of data from a lot of people on grip strength. The measures of lower extremity strength are more complicated to perform. And if you look across all of the epidemiological cohort studies that have been conducted worldwide, everybody does measures lower extremity strength a little bit differently. So it's very hard for cross comparisons or when you want to pool analyses to really see what's going on for some of these kinds of outcomes. So we have grip strength in a lot of people. It does appear to be linked to overall whole body muscle strength. But yeah, you're right. This is a very small muscle group in the hand. I wonder sometimes about what it's really measuring, but that's the data we have now. But I mean, I, I know we haven't talked Sounds about like this. Sounds like we yet, have a lot of work to do to understand sort of everything, which is everywhere in science. Of, you know, <laughs> the sort of commonly measured pro-inflammatory cytokine. Individuals that have high serum interleukin-6 levels faster than individuals that have lower levels of interleukin-6. But It bodes well for people that live in cities in the Northeast where walking speed is a point of contention because if you are slow on those sidewalks, 
they will let you know. Shoot, <laughs> <laughs> I think people get around and probably has influences on their spontaneous physical activity. Absolutely. And something you mentioned earlier, I had not thought about before, but peak muscle mass having an influence on you know likelihood of developing sarcopenia. We talk about that a lot when it comes to your bone mineral density and osteopenia and osteoporosis. But can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think it, it really goes back to the idea that aging probably begins at birth or even before birth. And probably there are genetic and perinatal influences on a host of these sort of phenotypic body composition changes that occur. We know that body adiposity, fatness is determined by a lot of these things, bone mineral density. And it's equally true, I think, that skeletal muscle accumulation during growth and development is influenced by many of these same factors. We also know, for example, that many of the same, both promyogenic, pro-osteogenic, and osteolytic, and anti-catabolic, anti-myogenic factors are very similar, but that act the same ways in bone and muscle. So that is definitely true. There's really good data from several of the large cohort studies that, you know, just like peak bone mass determines who gets osteoporosis later in life, peak strength really determines who gets weakness later in life. And I, I guess when you think about it, it's not surprising, probably. And as we learn more about the epigenetics of many of these, these lifelong traits or phenotypes and how they're influenced by, by perinatal development, but then maybe also by environmental exposures. I think we can unravel this. And, and those could also be really exciting, I think, biomarkers for what we see that's happening much, much later in life as well. Yeah, one uh, very good point that you mentioned that you said basically muscle loss or aging start from the day that you have been born. I think that that's a very good message for our audience. So aging doesn't start at the age of 65 or 70. We, we start much earlier. And especially for muscle, you should take care of your body from a very a, a early age and don't leave it to the age of 70. It will be too late. Too late. Right. Now, absolutely, Gil. I couldn't agree with that more. You know, I'm not that old, but when I first started studying sort of aging and, and muscle and aging and exercise, you know, when we recruited for our studies... Many of the people that volunteered to be in our research studies had had, particularly the women and many of the men as well, had had no experience with exercise and physical activity before in their lives. They went to school, they worked, they raised their families, and when they retired, retirement was really a time to just relax and not do anything. They had no concept of exercise training or physical activity in, in their lives. And I think we know so much more about the health benefits of exercise and also nutrition. And I think many, many more people realize this. We have wonderful developments that are legislated. You know, we have Title IX that allows for equal sports access and physical activity access for males and females, boys and girls, very early in school. So both men and women have a lot more exposure to exercise and physical activity throughout their life. And that's really important. And I think we really can't put ourselves in the situation where we worry or, or start thinking about becoming more physically active when we get older. This is a lifelong process and I think a lifelong commitment. And yes, you can benefit and you can improve your physical fitness and your health. 
exercise and you get to be 65 years of age and you say, hey, I want to start, yes, you can still improve. Yes, you can reap the benefits of physical activity, but you will never reach the level that you will achieve if you've always were physically active and have tried to maintain that across your life. And I think that is an important message. It's never too late to start, but you're always going to be better off if you started early in life and you maintained it. Maybe you have to take a little break or cut back a little bit when you're working or when you're raising your family, but don't stop. It's a really important health behavior that we really want to continue. And things that I don't have a chance to think about. I think people have to think about exercise behavior, if you will. You just sort of do it every day without even thinking about it. Yeah, and I can testify for that. One day I had a meeting with Roger and I, I've seen him coming to the office sweaty and he said, hey, I just finished a run. So I can testify that uh, Roger is an avid uh, runner. <laughs> yeah, I, may, I don't know if I'm avid. I like to, you know, I really enjoy exercising and, and you know, it's, I think it's allowed me to do the things that I've wanted to do and I hope I can continue to do. And as far as specifics, you know, is there an amount of activity that is associated with, you know, certainly there's a lot of factors that go into it, but is there a minimum that everyone should try and strive for to prevent that muscle atrophy associated with aging? Yeah. So fortunately, maybe about 15 years ago now, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services really, really engaged the scientific community to develop guidelines for physical activity. You know, we have the dietary guidelines for health, only sort of endorsed guidelines for physical activity. Well, we have those now, and they're probably in the second or third iteration of those. But they're pretty clear that, you know, there are numerous health benefits of exercise and physical activity. One size doesn't fit all, but the guidelines are pretty clear that they talk about people trying to achieve for optimum benefits, trying to achieve 350 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity per week. And there are numerous ways that you can get that moderate to vigorous activity. There's lots of things. It's not just about working out. It can include things like walking, gardening, heavy housework, working in your yard, those sort of things. But it's 350 minutes a week. And specifically for older adults, they also say included in that you should get one to two sessions per week of resistance exercise training or strength training exercises because we know that older people as they age lose muscle mass and muscle strength and can be at risk for developing sarcopenia. So the guidelines are general, but for older people, they are a bit more specific. We talk about strength training exercises as being really important. So Roger, I am surprised by that because it's mean like almost an hour a day that you need to exercise. And what I heard in the news is like 30 minutes, a few times a week. So that sounds like it's much higher than what we heard in the... In- Those are the optimal guys. Uh, some exercise is better than no exercise. So there's nothing wrong with just walking and you will reap some health benefits from that. But if you want to get the optimal benefits you need to strive towards those recommended physical activity guidelines. And from your research, in your opinion, what is, if you have to rank the exercise by the best to the second best and so on, what will be the most beneficial exercise to do? Well, we exercise because we know there are a lot of cardiorespiratory, cardiovascular studies suggesting that the health benefits from doing cardiovascular exercise cause specific mortality from cardiovascular disease. Diseases are 
in a number of different ways. You know, there are numerous ways to do resistance training. Some people who are not familiar with it might want to engage a personal trainer. They might want to join a, a fitness center where they can at least get some instruction using, you know, the specialized weight machine involved, the large muscle groups of both the upper extremity, the arms and the lower extremities, the legs, you know, strengthening exercises for the core muscles in the abdominal area. You know, strength training might take a little bit more instruction. But even very simple exercises can be done in the home using simple leg weights, a chair to get up and out of, for example. There are simple home if they, they so desire. The, y, the YMCA in your community is a very good source of programming around physical activity, whether it's aerobic conditioning or strengthening exercises or even sporting activities if you want to play basketball or, or other things. So there's lots of different ways to get the required amounts of physical activity. Some people love to go to the gym. They love the social aspects of going to the gym. Personally, I'm somebody that's intimidated to go to the gym. I don't, I like to leave. So it depends, you know, I'd rather work out with my free weights at home and, and sort of make up my little exercise routine that I can do rather than going to the gym. But other people really like the gym. So I think personal preference is important here. Whatever it is that you're going to do and you're going to adopt and do regularly is the most important thing. The thing that we find is that the benefits of exercise are real, they're substantial, but if you don't continue the exercise program, the benefits go away. So anything you can do to promote adherence, if you like exercising with your spouse or with a friend or a partner, that can be a really good way to promote adherence and accountability. So you'll go do your walk or you'll go running because you know you're going to be meeting your friend or your partner there. And, you know, it, it sort of convinces you to go and do that exercise or that physical activity on that day. So those, these are all important sort of behavioral techniques that you can use to help you sustain and promote adherence to physical activity. Awesome tips. And I think when people hear you should exercise more, it's often like, oh, yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> but there is a massive amount of science behind all of these recommendations. They didn't just get plucked out of the sky. And some of these, these tips can be enough to make a difference between whether someone wants to engage or, or doesn't want to engage in, in physical activity. So they can be really very useful. Other things that we do are things related to goal setting. People have a goal that they have in mind, like Maybe they're going on a canoe trip or they're going on a camping trip or a hiking trip and they don't feel like they're really quite up to doing the hikes every day for a week. Setting that as a goal and then figuring out what kind of physical activity and training I'm going to need to do to build up to going on the hike or the, the very active vacation can be a really good, useful goal-setting activity. Sure. And switching gears a little bit, you published a super interesting study in 2018 about lots of them, but this one in particular was about how the gut microbiome contributes to age-related changes oh. in the skeletal muscle. I feel like gut health and microbiome is such a popular topic now, but you've actually published work on it, which is great. Can you discuss what you found? Yeah, that was work we did with one of my colleagues in my laboratory, Mike Lusgarten who's very, very interested in the gut microbiome. And he had identified several metabolites that were only produced 
by gut bacteria. So we measured a whole using like metab a metabolomics approach. We had taken some samples of some older people and measured a whole number of different metabolites in these serum samples. And what he found interestingly is that there were several metabolites in, in these panels that were only could only be produced by gut bacteria. And those metabolites in these older people were related to muscle mass and muscle strength, suggesting that if they had a lot of these metabolites, they had lower mass and lower strength. So based on that, we did some work where we essentially transferred the gut microbiome from young mice to older mice. And these were mice that were raised in a sort of a germ-free colony. So they didn't have any gut bacteria initially. So we took gut bacteria from young and old people and transferred them into the germ-free mice. And when we took the bacteria from young individuals and put them into an older mouse, it actually increased the older mouse's strength, suggesting that, and, and we looked at the, and the, the gut was colonized with sort of the bacteria of the young individual, and it looked like their strength improved. That wasn't a really strong effect, but it was pretty significant and was the first study, I think, that had sort of demonstrated this what we're calling now this gut-muscle axis. You know, we have several ideas about how what's happening in the gut in aging may influence skeletal muscle. It could be some metabolites, as we showed with that metabolomic profiling. It could have to do with the fact that some of the gut-related changes in bacteria may be causing some low-grade inflammation in the systemic circulation, and that may be having effects on muscle. So what the real mechanism is, still not clear. But I do think that there are some relationships between what's going on in our guts as we age and what's happening in our skeletal muscle. We know that there's a pretty strong influence of the gut bacteria on body fat distribution, probably some brain function, so maybe it's not surprising that it also may affect our muscle function as well. Super interesting. Science is incredibly cool for so many reasons, but that I think is really awesome too. Whether we can change now, whether we can change that, right? If, whether we can change our gut microbiome and have some effects on muscle—that's something that really is an open question, and we're trying to develop some studies to maybe look at that going forward. And if we talk about overall nutrition needs related to the older population, we've talked about how important it is to have those building blocks of protein of enough amino acids. Are there some important nutrition changes or considerations that older listeners should make or as we age, we would want to take into consideration? Yes. I mean, I think there's a number of things that are really important. First of all, when we talk about nutrition for older adults, I think we do a very, very poor job of overgeneralizing by saying, what's nutrition for adults over the age of 65, right? And first of all, I would argue that the nutritional needs and requirements for someone that's 65 to 75 are a lot different than someone who's 75 to 85 years of age. And those are also a lot different from someone who's over 85 years of age. Yet we generalize these terrible requirements for older people anyway, and we don't know very much about necessarily what they eat. And what's important, I think, about that is that the fastest growing segment of our older population 
are individuals that are over the age of 85 years. And I think we know virtually nothing about what they eat. These are mostly people that live in the community. They have a lot of food insecurity issues. They have a lot of financial issues around food. They're isolated. Many of them are living alone. They have a lot of issues around preparing and eating foods for one person. Trends on nutritional adequacy of the diet, what you typically see is that as people get older, many of them are not consuming but, uh, intakes for many macro and micronutrients. And you know, when you look at sort of some of the bad things that people eat, solid fats and added sugars, they're consuming too many of those. And those are just by you know, national survey. So I think there's a lot of mal and poor nutrition among older adults. There are a lot of physiological changes that are superimposed on that that have implications for data now showing that with advancing age, 80 years and up to 90 years than they are in people who are 40, 50, and 60, what your total calorie intake can be per day and whether with that reduced calorie intake, whether you can actually, in fact, eat a diet that's adequate for many of the essential micronutrients. 13 to 1500 kcals per day. It's very, very difficult for you from food reference intakes for many of the micronutrients, calcium, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin C, vitamin A. It's just very, very difficult to do that. So I think we have to think carefully about those. Station is exploding now. In younger old age, I think we know that calcium, vitamin D are really important for bone and probably important for muscle health. Pro adequate protein intake and energy intake is important. But the other thing that's important is that probably 40 to 60% of individuals over the age of 65 now are overweight and obese. So we have this problem of excess adiposity in our early old age population and how we correct that, how we treat that, whether we actually do treat that in some cases is very much still an open question. And if we do treat it that maximize how much fat loss we, we achieve, but also preserve muscle and other lean tissue. Right now, if you go on a low energy diet, if you reduce mm. your calorie intake by 500 calories per day and you do that for three months, maybe you'll lose 10 pounds but probably six and a half pounds are going to be fat, but the other three and a half pounds will be muscle or, or lean tissue. So in an older person, that may not be a good thing to have happen. So we, we need to think about ways that we can design these appropriate interventions in, in older adults so that they can effectively lose fat, but preserve muscle. So what's your follow-up for that? So we discussed generally about nutrition, but now specifically for uh, building muscles, are there uh, specific amino acids that uh, you think that are uh, important for building muscle? And uh, if yes, what are they? So above and beyond, this is evidence that some of the branched-chain amino acids appear to be pro-anabolic, so leucine, isoleucine, and valine. So foods and protein supplements that tend to be more enriched with those branched chain amino acids seem to stimulate skeletal muscle protein synthesis to a greater extent than some other high quality proteins that don't have as much of a complement of those isolation. They seem to be able to stimulate muscle protein synthesis on their own. So yes, I think there is evidence for, for proteins that are 
enriched in the branched chain amino acids is to a greater extent. Whether they ultimately result in increases in muscle mass above and beyond what you would see with a comparable amount of protein, I think it depends on the population. I think it depends on whether they're taken with or without exercise and training what the population is that's being studied, what the kind of exercise training that they're undergoing. I think it's more equivocal. I think some studies have been positive, but I don't think all studies have been positive with regard to accrual of muscle mass. So it sounds like that you, if I understood this correctly, it is recommended for bodybuilders that go to the gym all the day and pump iron to take that, but uh, a normal person might not need it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think people that are really serious exercisers, the evidence is stronger for the, the consume an adequate amount of protein in our diets. Certainly whey protein and some of these other supplements are high quality proteins, lean meats. I'm not sure we really have an answer on that. Systematic reviews and meta-analyses, if you're consuming above the RDA. And, and so I'm hearing a lot about uh, strength training and basically the improving the health span of a person. So can you describe why is it, why is uh, strength training is so important to improve the health span? I think the reason strength in older adults in particular is because if you improve the strength of... Makes sense. Awesome. And you've shared so many awesome tips I think you need today. to be optimistic. I think life is great. And you we might know the answer to this last question already, but is there one decision that you make each day that could be based on exercise, nutrition, or just general longevity um, that you can share as a tip to our listeners? I think if we have a positive out, it's easier than others to do that. I think we're all going to be better off in this life that we, we live. That was a surprise to me. I would imagine that you would say running, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, running gives me an optimistic outlook, right? I think so it does. Exactly. Exercise endorphins but are other real, things sure do helps. too, right? <laughs> they are real. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Fielding. It was really awesome to speak with you. I've okay. seen your picture so much over the past eight years, so it was nice to have a conversation with you. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit insidetracker.com/podcast.